Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tokushikai Inside Look podcast. This episode is brought to you by our amazing patrons over at Patreon, who have generously donated as little as a cup of coffee to as much as the cost of a bowl of ramen per month. You can find episode videos for these interviews as well as deeper dives into other subject matters at patreon.com forward slash Tokushikai Canada. If you are enjoying this work, please consider supporting us. So my name is uh, Ivo. I'm 29 years old, um, and I think at least the past decade, my entire like life.、Uh, so basically, my my career has been growing as a person through Budo.、Um, I think I was like 18 years old、uh, when I was introduced to Kendo by one of my friends, and I immediately fell in love with it.、Uh, we had like a really small club with like only three or four members.、Um, But there was just something that that kind of got me hooked onto it, and I was just like walking to the dojo every week, being super excited for that one hour of practice.、Um, but like I said, the club was pretty small, and、um, I wanted to grow more. And、uh, the one of the national team members actually、um, talked with me during one of the the main events from our federation. And、uh, he said, "Like, well, if you're really into kendo and really into martial arts, then you know, like, there's no better place to learn it than Japan." And he basically pointed me to、uh, the International Budo University, and I was like, "Well, yeah, I mean, you're right." So I applied, and I I got in. It's a pretty long process of sending documents and doing medical tests and. You know, like giving all your、uh, previous school results and whatnot. So yeah, that's that's how I got to do kendo at a slightly higher level and more like focused on what kendo is all about from the origin.、Um, so you, you then, talked、yeah. about going from a small club to this like international university. Maybe you can fill in the blanks a little bit, the in between parts. What was the、um, Dojo and the federation, like in terms of like sizes and numbers, because if you think about any country, like you have the big cities and then you have the small, medium cities, smaller cities. Same thing in like these kind of、um, organizations, you have like the big dojos, the medium dojos, the little dojos. Can you、uh, just describe that a little bit in your country in the the Netherlands, right? Yeah, yeah. So、uh, yeah, my my club is located in Tilburg.、Uh, it's the city where I was born and raised, and we had I, like. Like three or four members,、uh, all beginners, and then one teacher who was second down.、Uh, and yeah, from there I kind of like registered as a member of the national federation because in the Netherlands we are individually registered. So it's not that you're a member of the dojo and then you are automatically registered. You just have to go、uh, register yourself, and then you get invitations to bigger events. And one of these events was. I think like a central practice where basically they send out an invitation to all the dojo and all the dojo members, and usually it's about a hundred people or so that show up.、Um, so for me that was like a really big difference from like a small local dojo with like four practitioners to like the big in, like national federation team or practice、uh, with about a hundred people. So that was really exciting. And that really like showed me as well. There is a lot more than what I know than just this like small dojo that I'm I'm currently practicing in.、Um, so yeah, I registered for the International Budo、uh, University and I got in. 
And there it was even a bigger surprise for me because we have a lot of different students. And I would say that during my time there, which was in 2012, um, I think we had about 250 to 300 uh, students in the dojo every day. So that was like an insane number for me. I was like so surprised and everybody was better than me because I was just like a super fresh shodan uh, kid, you know, like just coming in there. And it was just so awesome. Like it was just a dream come true to go to the, to the university and just practice with all these guys that were so much stronger than me. And I learned so much. It was really, really good time. So that that's a period of time that also like coincides with a regular university and time period. Did you like first go to regular school and then go there or did you like? Yeah. So two? the, the, um, so the educational system in the Netherlands is slightly different or maybe it's similar to, uh, other places, but it's slightly different from, uh, I think American, uh, type of, of uh, education so after i finished my high school i was 16 and i went to college uh, for four years and i studied design uh, so i think i was like like just 21 22 ish uh, when i came to japan uh, and then yeah like most of the students were like 18 19 years old so i was like slightly older but still in the same age category um, yeah, and then when I came back from from Japan, actually, uh, so first I did college in design, then I went to the International Buddha University, and then finally I went back and I uh, did another university in the Netherlands for four years, uh, where I studied game design. So that's why we're in the, the Sony office right now. That's why I'm in Japan. Yeah. It, so was this a uh, Buddha University trip, like, was it considered a gap year for you? Something that you would kind of experience normally? Uh, I need, at least in America, some people, some kids, like after a high school graduation, they'd go for like a trip and then come back for university for what was your thinking around like the school and professional career and pursuing Budo a little more deep? Well, so my, uh, my first college that I went to, that was four years of design. And in the last year of my college, I actually learned how to work with a uh, software called 3ds Max, which is basically just 3D modeling software on a computer. And I, I really enjoyed it. Like the rest of the, the courses were more like, uh, you know, like making uh, window shopping installments and uh, pla floor planning for stores and displays, that kind of stuff. That wasn't really my forte. But the, the 3D stuff on the computer was really, really a cool thing. So my original plan was actually after college to go to university and um, study game design, which was basically building on that 3D creation spectrum. Uh, but in between, I just got this opportunity to go to Japan for, for a year. So it was not really like a gap year because usually that's after high school. Um, and I already finished four years of college when I did that. But yeah, it's, it's, it was pretty intense. Okay. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that experience going to IBU. Initially you went in and you were like, just wide-eyed beginner, but like gradually you got to know people and did stuff and something at least convinced you that living in Japan could have been a more long-term thing because you're back there now. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Can you talk about that experience? <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, basically, I, I arrived in Japan and I had a really terrible flight. It was 
was really shitty. I was flying with a Russian uh, airline and I just missed my flight and they only fly once every 24 hours. So I had to wait 24 hours in Moscow and it was like snowing and oh man. So I actually arrived a day later and I had no no way of contacting my university that I would arrive a day later because they were supposed to pick me up at Narita Airport. So my my start already was like, oh my God, what's going on? Super turbulent, first time being outside of Europe. Um, and then everybody there was just so respectful and nice when I finally arrived. And they were very helpful and just very welcoming. And it was really nice to, to notice that. And the same goes for the, the kendo club. So I, I, of course, went for kendo, but I also did different stuff. I did uh, iaido, kudo, naginata, jukendo, tankendo, like a whole different like bunch of things just to try it out. Um, but kendo was my main thing. So the practice is, is very intense and uh, very strict. It's very focused on discipline. Um, but it's it's like parts of the whole uh, practice I found are also you, you basically find it in in daily life here as well. Everything is super clean. People follow rules, um, and that that fit like was something that fit really well with me as well, like personally on like a personal level. So that's one of the things why I really enjoyed being in Japan as well. And then of course, but not a lot of people notice the the food in the Netherlands is not that great. And then if you go to Japan, it's just amazing. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't know if you want to be saying that Netherlands food isn't that good, but... Uh, <laughs> it's just potatoes, so <laughs> yeah. nothing special. But that, yeah, no one can argue that food in Japan is like the best. I, I think it was like a few years ago, maybe even more than that, that uh, Japan was uh, recognized as having the mo most Michelin-starred restaurants in the world, surpassing France. So, Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. That. I didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, like even the, the small local convenience stores, the twenty-four hour uh, shops, they they sell amazing food. I'm totally hooked up on the spaghetti here. <laughs> it's not even <laughs> Japanese, but it's so good. Yeah, they put their little twist on it, and then just makes it all that better, that much better. Yeah. Um, so one thing I want to ask you about IBU, because uh, you're not the first person I've interviewed so far that has been there, but over time I've heard that there is these perceptions of that university and that program from people that have never been. So I, I was wondering if you could address uh, kind of two of those extremes. Uh, on one end, people are like, whoa, this is like the Mecca of, uh, of all Budo and you'll learn everything about there. And when you come back, you can be like the teacher of the, of the country. And on the other spectrum, they're like, well, these guys are just trying to make money and they're like low ranking people that are teaching it. And it's just for sport because it's a sport university. So can you address like mm -hmm. those two spectrums? And in reality, what is it more like? Yeah, so uh, those are actually two really interesting points. So I, I went in completely blank. I didn't know that much about the university. I didn't know that much about the teachers or the program. Uh, I was just advised to go there by one of the Kendo people I know, uh, who is currently the, the team captain of the national team. And he just advised me to go there. And I just followed his advice and not really looking online like, oh, what is it? Is it really like uh, the best university or is it just like a easy money grab, so to speak? And what I found is that there's a lot of people there who have a lot of heart. So people really care for uh, the arts they do. And of course, it's a private university. So they are there to make money. But the whole program, especially for the Bekase, which is basically the program that you get 
enrolled in when you're a foreign national, then you you initially pay uh, the school fees, but you get you get like some kind of scholarship through the university itself, which pays back pretty much the entire amount uh, over the course of 12 months. So it doesn't cost you that much money. You basically spend money on food and maybe, you know, like some clothing or if you buy like new equipment for your budo, uh, that will cost you money. But in general, it's it's not that expensive. Um, and then just to point out the fact that the teachers are like really good. We have like world championships, uh, Japanese national championships, winners, uh, first place, national team members from the Japanese teams. Uh, teaching at the university. So I'm 100% guaranteed that quality is is definitely uh, a high point. On the other hand, and I think that is like a small nuance that you have to understand if you come to Japan and you don't speak Japanese and maybe you're from a different age category. Um, most people that go here are, you get credits for every class that you follow. And obviously uh, a kendo class, following a kendo class is easier than learning from a book. So you'll notice that a few students will actually enroll in kendo classes or in kudo classes or whatever martial arts just to get the credits. And they're not really interested in the sports. So if you are practicing with these people, obviously the level will be a little less high. Um, and apart from that, these students are also not interested in the budo and they're not interested in you as a foreigner. So that might be pretty rough. But then again, it's like something you have to understand if you're, you know, like, enrolling into a university with students of like age category 20. What has your experience been in terms of uh, learning on Budo as like that, that more concept of more theoretical, the more philosophical side of it uh, in terms of that program? Um, so when I started, like the whole philosophy part was not that, that extremely appealing to me. Um, you know, like we basically went into the dojo twice a day, three times a day. Uh, you come in, everybody does warming up together. You put on your armor and you just go for like two hours. You know, there's, there's not a whole lot of philosophy going on, but we actually had the opportunity to, uh, sit down every week for a few hours with, uh, some of the Hachidan, the eight Dan uh, sensei. And they went like really all out into what it actually means to practice Budo and where it comes from. And uh, you really notice that even though their level is insane, and especially if you look at the results they get uh, and the results they get from their students as well, it's, it's really impressive. Uh, and you notice that the students who perform really well in, say, competitions are usually also the students who perform really well on the academic level. So they have to score good points to be selected to represent their university, right? So you have this kind of class division as well, um, which means that the stronger people tend to listen to these experienced teachers a lot better and have a lot more respect for them. And then in turn, this kind of like perpetuates the idea that these people know it all. So you'll just grab every information they have and because they're older and they're not into competition that much anymore, they will talk a lot more about like the whole philosophical part. And that for me, especially like kind of like getting to know this, these teachers on a personal level and talking every week with them kind of like piqued my interest as well. 
Um, and that in combination with some other classes that I followed, like the, the courses of calligraphy and flower arrangement and uh, tea ceremony and those kind of things. Like initially you're thinking like, okay, I'm just painting a pretty picture or just making a cup of tea. But then when you talk to these teachers and you get like their whole life vibe as well, it becomes a lot more clear, like what the whole like big picture is about. And then it doesn't really matter that much for which Budo you're going, if you're going for Kyudo or if you're going for Kendo or if you're going for flower arrangement, they all have the same mindset. And, and that's what I really liked about the university because there's just, it's just all these teachers of all these different kind of aspects all coming together with the same mindset. Was there any one of these sessions that you had discussions with Sensei that you remember or sticks in your mind? Uh, yeah, actually, it was pretty funny because like uh, I said before, right, we have a lot of students who just take courses uh, just to get credits. And then there's also like super motivated people. And we had one class with uh, Ijima Sensei, which is like my my personal sensei. And um, he's, he's Hachidan, so he's very high level, but he was super down to earth. And there was this one conversation where we were basically talking about how old samurai in uh, used to run around so they would have a different type of running where they would keep their feet closer to the um to the ground and keep their hands more on their hips uh, to hold their sword and stuff this is a, like a specific type of running and then we actually went outside of the building and we were like running in the street together for like going back and forth showing like oh this is how they were running and getting these old wooden shoes called Geta. Um, and it's like, oh, now try to run on this. And that was like a very, you know, a very personal and very fun moment. And then later on in one of the classes with uh, actual university students, uh, we had like a discussion about how footwork is supposed to be and where it comes from. And then he was like, hey, Ivo, you know what I'm going to ask you. And I was like, oh, no, is he going to ask me to run in front of all these Japanese students who are not interested in uh japanese martial arts they're just here for credits he's like yeah you're gonna run so i had to run through the dojo in front of all of them and you know of course they were making fun of me and they were laughing but it was just such a positive vibe you know it was it was really good so that really stick as well yeah that's amazing that's fun uh so uh so far we talked about um you participating in all these practices and experiencing like the different uh arts and um and having these discussions, but most of it has been campus life. And you know that if you were to come to Japan, you'd uh, the life would be quite different. Were there any experiences in, in that aspect that kind of at least gave you some confidence that if you were to move back here and work and live, that you have at least some knowledge of what it would be like? Uh, well, that's really difficult. So I always knew uh, just based on the university, right? That was it, it felt like a holiday. It was just awesome. It was always beautiful weather. The university is located close to the ocean. Uh, you can go swimming. It's just a beautiful place. The food is amazing and everything's focused on student life. So it's super cheap. Uh, you know, like it's, it's just really convenient. And I knew that if I was going to go back to Japan, first I would work, be working in a Japanese company. And for what I heard, you know, like from online and other stuff, is that that's not really the life you want because they make a lot of hours. It's a lot of pressure. And, you know, everybody's always talking about the suicide rates being so high and all that stuff. So I knew that, like, my experiences in the university were definitely not, like, this is how it's going to be. Um, 
but because I spoke Japanese and uh, I actually like uh, got scouted by Sony, I had the opportunity to do a half year internship in Tokyo. So I basically went with that. And I really noticed that because I'm in a creative branch, right? We're making video games. Uh, it's a lot more flexible, right? So I don't, I can make up my own hours if I want to. I can pretty much do whatever I want in terms of research topics. Uh, it's it's very relaxed. Um, and I'm also in a really nice part of Tokyo. I'm a little bit more on the east side. So it's very green. There's like a lot of nice canals and stuff. So when I did that half year, I was really convinced like, okay, I, I can do this. But what what's left for me now is to find actually a club here. <laughs> okay so th that would probably be like after your that second four-year program that you had done in computer uh computer graphics or yeah. what was yeah uh, it's international game architecture and design so it's a very long name but it's basically just uh, I'm, I'm a visual arts so i'm making uh, visual aspects for video games so i'm an artist yeah uh could you talk about a little bit about that kind of work and how did you get scouted by Sony and what were they looking for and in, in that whole process? So basically when I enrolled in the university in Breda for games, I, uh, I didn't know a whole lot. I just knew like, okay, I like 3D computer graphics. I like making video games. Uh, so I just enrolled and we started off using a software called Maya. It's also just a modeling software. You're making models. It was pretty much fun. But it wasn't too too special. And then I did a little bit more technical aspects, so rigging, so basically making the bones inside of a model so you can move it later on or have an animator move it around. Um, and then after that, because I noticed I liked the technical aspect, I got introduced to a program called Houdini. And it's basically procedural modeling software or visual effects software. And you're just writing or visual coding statements that eventually just build up a certain thing, right? So it's pretty hard to give examples, but everything is procedural. So I can say like, okay, I'm going to make a mountain and then everything, uh, I'm going to place trees on the mountain. And then if I give like a certain height value, I want the trees to stop growing there, right? That's like a procedural thing because you don't know what the mountain is going to be looking like, but you can set those variables. Um, so I, I kind of focused in that or focused on that. And then in my third year, uh, I became the team lead for um, the Houdini team in our school, uh, which was basically an outsourced team. So we had like small teams making video games. And then we had one specific team that was focused on uh, either visual effects, like, you know, like uh, water simulations or fire simulations, these kind of things. Uh, or more like procedural modeling kind of things, like, oh, you need a train track running through your terrain, uh, or you need uh, 10,000 houses, but they all have to look different. That's like a tool we would build. I was the, the lead for that team. Um, and during an event called Everything Procedural, which is a university-hosted uh, event once every year, every two years, with a lot of people from all over the world flying in to listen to speakers and have like master classes. Um, my team presented as well, and uh, there were a few people from Japan, including people from Sony or from Born Digital or Polyphony Digital, uh, like a lot of different uh, companies. And because I had a little bit of experience with Japanese, uh, my teachers actually requested like, hey, can you talk with these guys? 
but before I had the chance to talk with them, they already came to me and they were like, Hey, uh, in, in very broken English, trying to ask like, Hey, can we see more of your work and stuff like that? They we're so enthusiastic that they said like, Oh, well, uh, we would love to have you at Sony headquarters in, uh, in Tokyo. And I was like, wow, that, that sounds really good. Um, but actually at that same event, I also talked with the original developers for Houdini, which is called Side Effects Software. Uh, and they're located in uh, Canada and in the States. And I actually got an internship with them as well. So I went to Beverly Hills for half a year. So in 2018, 2019, I was in Beverly Hills. And then when I came back to school, I just had to do another six-month internship and Sony said like, hey, we still want you. Do you want to come to us? And I was like, well, I actually just finished my internship uh, in LA. So sure, I'll, I'll go. And that's basically how I came to uh, work here for the first half year. And yeah, that's how I knew, uh, okay, this, this work is really suited for me. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's very flexible. So it's, it's easy to schedule around my uh, practices. Right now, we don't have any because of Corona, but it's definitely a doable thing. So, yeah. Yeah. So actually when I wouldn't have too much experience in this field, but um, I recently watched a documentary with, cause my daughter watches frozen and we were watching the frozen Two making of, and they showed all these different teams, like the ones that make like the, the trees, the ones that make the visual effects, the ones that make the people and the characters. And one thing I noticed that was really interesting was that when they were trying to model these, real life things, they would actually go out and take a look at it. Or if they were doing movements, they would film themselves or they would look in a mirror to look at facial features. How, how have you kind of, what, what do you think in terms of like bringing that knowledge into the graphics or do you take a different creative approach? Uh, no, I think for any good artist, um, whether that's in, uh, if it's in visual effects or if it's like in, traditional painting or if it's in modeling or if it's i don't know in in whatever kind of uh, field you're in if you're in in arts i think the one thing that's extremely important is reference and it doesn't really matter what you're doing but reference is always important so uh, basically uh, i had another presentation that you can find online i think on my own website dokai and there i'm doing a presentation in la where i'm basically going over the steps that you take as an artist and one of the first things I'm talking about a lot is, is the reference. So what I'm doing uh, when I'm modeling something, in example, then I'm going out as well and I'm taking pictures. Uh, right now, my phone is pretty much like stuffed with environmental pictures. I'm just walking through the streets of, of Tokyo and then I'm seeing like an old building with um, uh, these corrugated metal panels and the paint is blattering off and there's like rust stains everywhere. And I'm like, taking pictures from all angles and then I put that on my computer and then I'm going to try to model it and using different software I'm trying to recreate what I see and the better you are capable of recreating what you're seeing the more realistic it will feel obviously and then one thing I always find really interesting is that you can pretty much easily spot when an artist has no experience looking at reference Right? So we always know that when we're watching an example, uh, manga or anime, and we can see an inexperienced artist or somebody who just began, like proportions are always off and uh, things just look kind of weird. And sometimes it's easy to point out what it is, but a lot of times it's also like, okay, I can see this is not correct, but I don't really know why it's not correct. 
And usually what the case then is, is that you'll have an artist who will, so basically what every artist do, does is we are making something from something, right? We see something and then we see certain aspects of it and we try to copy those aspects. And the better you can copy the aspects from real life, the easier it is to get your own art to look good. So what some people will do is they're like, and especially in games, you see this a lot. You see like, oh, I really like this stylized video game that I saw. I am going to recreate the stylized trees that I saw in this game or the stylized houses. Well, if you have a good artist, you'll have an artist that will look at real live reference and then be like, okay, I'm going to stylize this real life reference based on my knowledge on how to stylize it. So that's that's why like how I think a lot of artists work from based on reference. And that can be either a mood board or pictures or uh, just memories. That's basically it. Yeah. So I definitely understand why teams like Disney and Pixar are going flying all over the world just to see these things. Yeah. Yeah. And I I wanted to bring this up because I thought that there was a there was some kind of connection and the way that you were explaining it really kind of emphasized that was if you want to look at our, the better you are at doing something is like the better you are at taking a reference and bringing it into your own work and your own creation sounds a lot like Mitori Keiko because you're looking at these like high ranking people, these really good people and you're watching and you're trying to figure out what they're doing and then you're trying to do it yourself and someone with more experience is able to capture it. But someone also that naturally has the skill um, they talk about mirror neurons in your head where you can just see something and you can mimic it in your own body. Those seem to be the people that are learning Budo quickest. So uh, how have you noticed, like, this might be like the first uh, introduction of this concept, like being together, but when you think about your work as a graphic artist and someone that has to look at this and the skills you've built up doing that, have you noticed that when you go into your Budo, you're also someone that naturally can just see something, some way of someone do something and then implement it yourself? Uh, well, I wouldn't say that I'm that talented because uh, like Budo is a very long road and, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, um, to say, okay, we have one correct example, right? So in, in Budo, especially when you get to a, a very high level, like Hachidan Sensei, they will all show different things and it will always be a different path. But the one thing that you do that, or at least I can take away from it is like, if you ask somebody to copy what a, a sensei is doing, they will try to copy it and they will see something and they will do it. Or if you say like, here's a book with pictures, try to copy Kendo only by doing this book, then even a, a regular person can understand like, okay, there is this connection. If I'm just learning from a book, there's no way I'm going to get as good as getting the hands-on experience. And that's basically what it is. In, it is the hands-on experience. It is the reference in real life that you need to be able to make your own and not reference from reference, so to speak. Okay. So I'm not you, sure if that answers not... your question. but <laughs> No, it's whatever perspective you have on that. Um, so you come back to from Japan, and that was still pretty earlier in your Kendo career. Um, so talk about from then on, like you're you're still you you went back to school, you're still doing these internships, but your budo is also progressing. Can you talk about like those next few years? Uh, what were you doing? Yeah. So when I came back from uh, Japan, 
I actually talked with my teachers and they asked me to, because they knew my situation, they knew I was coming from a relatively small uh, city. We have about 200,000 uh, people living in it. And like I said, the dojo was about four people. By the time I came back, it was like six or seven, maybe a little bit more. Um, so my teacher asked me like, hey, make your own dojo, really focus on the correct aspects of Budo. Because um, they gave me a lot of reference you know, to work from uh, and a lot of help as well. So they, they came up with a name and they, they did nice calligraphy of the dojo name and that kind of stuff. And they really helped uh, with a lot of things. But the teaching I had to do myself. So I was coming back and I was still shodan uh, in, in kendo, which is for teaching is a very low level. Um, but I started the dojo anyways because I had like these eight dan sensei backing me up and saying like, no, you really have to try and it's good for you and you will learn a lot from it. And I actually did. So teaching those years after coming back from Japan really like improved my kendo. Um, and because I was practicing with these Japanese students a lot they're all like 20 years old have 15 years experience of kendo they're super energetic extremely fast so i kind of sub subconsciously copied that as well so i noticed that my kendo was getting more and more japanese so to speak so that's like a compliment i got a lot of times like whoa your kendo is very japanese it's a very difficult thing to understand unless you've actually been in japan and know the difference but so that's that's always something that's like really nice to hear um and yeah the the coach of the national team member asked me like hey you're pretty good do you want to join national team practice so i was invited to be part of the national team uh and then i went to the european championships it was a very very interesting experience because it's basically all the high level people from europe coming together to fight um yeah it was was an amazing experience and at the same time i was still trying to you know like figure out what do I want to focus on in, in my university? Do I want to focus on just modeling or do I want to do rigging or, Oh, I actually found this cool software called Houdini. So yeah, that, that was very interesting to juggle around, but I noticed that, you know, like I really enjoyed doing, doing Budo, uh, both Kendo, Yaido, Kudo, different kinds of things. Um, but I also really enjoyed the, the way that, Budo people interact. So I was very happy with my dojo, seeing it grow and grow and going from like the few members that we had. I think we started with three members or something uh, and then just slowly rising. And I think that the time, by the time I left, we had about 30 members. Um, and it was just such a nice closed group. And then when I, um, I actually enrolled in a local club there as well. And it was exactly the same vibe. Right. So it's, it's super nice and super in, uh, like interconnected or I don't know how to say it, but that was, was really something that for me made me realize, okay, so it doesn't matter where in the world you are. There's always this super tight connection between Budo people. It doesn't matter your gender or your, your cultural background or whatever, your age, uh, I have like a lot of Kendo people that are like uh, way older than I am. There's also a few that are like quite a bit younger uh, right now. So that make, that's making me feel old. But yeah. So that was that was a pretty interesting uh, thing to see, like all of that coming together. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that like some people can look at your Kendo and say that looks like Japanese Kendo. When you went, go to Europe and you take part in the, these championships, uh, 
Do you notice like any differences in other countries? Like, could you say this is uh, German kendo and this is French kendo and this is? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's very interesting to see, right? Because we we basically have every country has their own federation, and uh, like, don't pin me down on it. I don't know the exact numbers, but I think that the biggest uh, kendo country in, in Europe is France, with I assume about five thousand members. And then you have Germany, which is about 3,000 members or something. And they all have these national like championships and by the national federation organized seminars and stuff. And they will all have their own dedicated teacher, right? That comes every year and teaches this specific way of fighting uh, and or doing kendo in general. And I noticed that if we look, example, at French kendo people, I, I really like French kendo because it's, it's very close to a mixture of being Korean or Japanese. It's, it's very fast. Um, it has very fast movements based on what they're doing, but also very fast movements based on, on what your opponent is doing. Uh, so they're very reactive, but they're very sharp in their reactions. And then if we look at other countries, if we go a little bit more eastwards, uh, so like I traveled a lot. Uh, I've been to, you know, like countries like Ukraine or Russia or uh, Poland or whatever for Kendo. And you notice, or at least I notice that the further eastward you go, the more it's based on muscle, right? So we have a lot of very strong Kendoka and they can win their tournaments because they just, they just break through your, your kamai or your posture or your defense because they are so strong. They use so much muscle. But then when you see like these people fight, an example, the French people, the French are so sharp and so fast that they already score before this, this heavy impact arrives. Right. So I can, I can clearly see like, okay, we have this kind of kendo or this kind of kendo, but it's all good. It's all the same, same road. My sensei used to say like, okay, imagine you have Mount Fuji or whatever mountain you have. And there's some people who are very talented and they are going like in one straight line, they're going up, but you're all starting at the same point. Then there's people and there's, they, they go like counterclockwise and they go circle wise all the way to the top. And then there's people that go clockwise all the way to the top. Um, and there's multiple points where all these paths will connect. And there's also multiple points where you're on the complete opposite of the mountain from each other. But in the end, you'll all start it at the same point and you will all end at the same point. It's just everybody's road is, is different. So I'm not basically saying that just because somebody is, is using uh, lighter and sharper movements or somebody has like more muscle, uh, either one is, is, you know, like it, it's on a way going somewhere. So that's where I can see where people are coming from from their kendo yeah yeah i love that analogy like i've heard of it before like the point of the mountain and everyone's heading to the same spot but all these other nuances of going counterclockwise going straight up meeting at different points but also separating i i, I love that additional detail um so you you've talked about kendo so far but you're also involved in all these like in a couple of other arts so how has all that kind of come together how do you continue doing how did, did you continue doing that when you were back in the Netherlands? And what did you have to do? Because I think you had to create a dojo for those other things too. Yeah, yeah. So actually, uh, I originally started off with uh, Washington, uh, my dojo as a kendo club. Um, 
But because I also wanted to continue Kyudo and Yaido, Yaido, I also already when I was in Japan, I contacted my the my friends that I knew that were kind of wanting to get into uh, these different martial arts. I contacted them like, hey, you know, if you're really motivated, we can do this. But you know, these are the costs that you have to think of, like buying an example for Kyudo, buying the Yumi, the the bow and the arrows and all that stuff. Um, and then there was actually a, a few few of my students who were into it. And I bought the materials for them. And when I came back to the Netherlands, I shipped it. So I had like this huge, huge sack of, I don't know, like I had a lot of bows that I bought myself. I think I bought about 14 or 15 uh, Yumi myself just so I could teach people. Um, so they were all different kind of strengths. And I had like the bows for the kids and, you know, different lengths and all that stuff. This is all very, you know, like secondhand old stuff, uh, old kind of needed repairs but you know you have to make do and then also like some some brand new ones for uh the people who bought it brought so i, I just came in the netherlands and arrived at skip hole and you know the the what is it called like the border kind of like customs service uh they were like you mister can you come with us please and i was like yeah sure and they said can you please open it up and i opened it up and it's like what are these and i was like well they're they're bows for practicing archery and they're like oh okay well how much are they worth because we're for customs we don't really care about what it is we just need to know what it's worth and it's like oh well it's all secondhand so i guess like five or ten bucks per bow because i, I knew they wouldn't know and they were like oh well then it's below what we would have asked for customs so you can just keep going and then i just kept going and i had like all the stuff in there so i had people that really wanted to do kendo and i had people that wanted to do kudo but yeah, it was a little bit difficult because, you know, like bringing actual swords into the country, I didn't have the money for it. And it was pretty difficult to like, I just started at the university. So I had like one year of experience. And although the teacher that taught us at the university is, I'm, I'm safe that I can say he's the best Yaidoka in the world at the moment. He has won the All Japan Champions, I think seven or eight times in a row. Uh, so he's like, his skill level is insane and he's super kind. But he, he wasn't in the Netherlands. And back then, we didn't really have Zoom or whatever. So Iaido kind of went back. And I, I sometimes practiced it in the dojo before kendo classes. Or when we were doing kata for kendo, I would like be on the side and think of like, oh, okay, how did I do these Iaido kata again? It was kind of like falling backwards. Um up until the moment where more and more people were actually interested and we had like a few Yaito and we started practicing a little bit more often and we went to Japan with the whole club every two years after it was founded. So people actually got an idea because I was like, okay, I can teach you guys, but instead of just me teaching you, it would be better to see in Japan for yourself what it is actually what that I'm trying to teach. So every two years, we went back with the whole club and meeting all these teachers, including the Iido teacher. And Kaneda-sensei is just like so excited whenever there's like new members and he always remembers every single person uh, on those trips, even if they come for multiple years in a row. And yeah, he's, he's just so kind that we really try to invest more time in that as well. And right now we have a, a club that has like all three of the, the Budo aspects that we want to teach, Kendo, Kyudo, and Iido. Well, I mean... Right now we have Corona, so we only do online stuff, but yeah. How did you manage like the space and timing for all that stuff? Like for, 
for Yado probably is, requires the least amount of space because you don't like you're not running around all the place. But then like for Kido, you also need to have safety and makiwara and then uh, kintaki. How do you how did you get all that set up? Yeah, so um, we actually did it like the very like cheap style. Um, I got a piece of well, it's not styrofoam; it's a specific type of square block that you're using in archery to put uh, on those those target uh, wooden stands. And I got one of them from uh, from an archery website, and it included like a target. So we had like one model that we were shooting on. And I ordered like one of those safety nets from behind it. And that's that's basically how we practiced. We didn't have makiwara. We didn't have like gomukyu. Uh, I had like, because I bought so much secondhand stuff, we had like a lot of arrows. We had a lot of um, yukake, the gloves. But yeah, that, that was pretty much it. So we really tried to focus like on what I still remembered. We did that about once a week um, up until the moment where Kendo got like, like I had to practice or put more time and effort in Kendo because of the national team and because of competitions and stuff. So usually I was not in the country on weekends because either to like Germany or France or even further away, like Ukraine for practice. Um, so then Kudo kind of like slowly dropped again until we got an invitation from the Kudo Federation, the Kudo Renme in the Netherlands that basically invited us like, hey, maybe we can do like a joint practice someday. And we went to a neighboring dojo and they were just so open and welcoming as well. Like basically what you now expect from, from Budo. And they were like, well, since you don't really have a lot of time and we can see like there's like a decline in skill going on, how would you like it if we would like have more of these joint practices? And that eventually grew out to Washington getting our own um Nidan teacher in Kyudo that's there every week for two to three hours. Uh, we now have, I think, one or two Makiwara. We have, I think, five Mato. We have a bigger net. We have more material. So it's it's really increasing and it's it's really nice to see. And I guess Kyudo is the next step. Yeah, no, I, I love that story because it really shows that you don't have to make a trade-off for someone that's uh, your age, pretty young, still in the prime of your practicing career, um, it's hard to sacrifice some of that of your own time to teach others and to organize and to make sure. But you've been able to, so a lot of times that either one of those two things get dropped. But in this case, like, it really shows that you have to reach out to the community and you have to accept help from others. And let, like, in this case, you, you're letting another teacher teach your students. So that that's just having that openness to it really demonstrates like how people should be acting in this space. Yeah, yeah, it feels, uh, I, I feel like that because, you know, that's was, that was really one thing that I learned from just going abroad so much, right? There's, you can learn from everybody. And when I was starting as a teacher, you know, like I was shodan in Kendo and I was like IQ in Naginata and IQ in Kyudo and IQ in Yaido or something, you know, like really like on a beginner level. Um, and then, you know, like even when I was looking at other people who like only did it for like a few weeks, so like really, really beginning level, I could still learn from them. So, you know, like there's there's this vibe going on sometimes and you see these people stagnate around their, their sundown, I think. Uh, it's like they know it all or um, their teacher knows it all. So they're no longer open for like feedback from other people. 
And that's why I think it's so extremely important to always visit other dojo as well. I mean, I've been to dojo where people say like, oh yeah, we never go to, uh, an example, we never go to this specific club or we never go to this specific federation or whatever uh, because we don't like them. And I'm like, yeah, well, I want my students to know that there's more out there and that my way of teaching is not the only way of teaching because that will just make them improve faster. So that's that's really something that I'm trying to explain my students as well. And like I said before, with uh, every two years when we go to Japan with the whole club, that's like kind of the big message that I want to give them, right? So I have to go back every two years because I might deviate from my path that I'm on with teaching, right? My teachers are like, they have this specific goal in mind and I am here and there's this straight line that I can follow and I'm on that path. But because I never get any feedback from them because I'm in the Netherlands and, you know, like it's just difficult, I'm, I'm slightly deviating to one or the other side. And then every two years we go back and they see that all these sensei are like correcting me and saying like, no, you should do this like this. And, oh, you're doing this. Have you thought about this? And, oh, I see you incorporated this, which I said like last time. And uh, that really learns or teaches my students as well that there's more than one teacher and you should just try to learn from everybody. And yeah, this is a really good example of like these other teachers coming to our club and teaching. So I'm I'm very happy and very grateful for that because I'm pretty sure that it, it wasn't for that. Um, but also, you know, like me going to practices with other national team members or visiting other countries, I would never have been able to become like a national championship, uh, national champion as well. So there's there's like a big payoff from learning from multiple people. Yeah. So uh, that part about being national champion, like so far I've heard you went, you went to Japan, you came back and you were immediately, you're like Shodan, you're already teaching. So again, we were saying how some of your time was already set aside to help build this dojo and help with students. And you're only seeing your senseis every other year or so. How did, how were you able to build up the necessary uh, skills and physical ability and mental ability to, to win at the national level? Yeah, so that's that's uh, like in total, it's a exactly ten year mark because uh, you know I, I started when I was I started doing kendo in I think two thousand nine, if I'm correct, um, and then uh, in two thousand nineteen I became national member or a national uh, champion. Uh, so that's an exactly ten year mark, and the first part. You know, like I wasn't even thinking about national team, all that stuff. I just, you know, wanted to do kendo. And then I went to Japan. I saw there's more. Then I actually realized, oh, there's also competitions. Because um, when I originally started with kendo, I didn't know there were competitions. I just wanted to do kendo because it looked so cool and was so much fun. Um, and then when I came back, yeah, the, the, it was it was very difficult. Um, there were a lot of times where I was not able um, to practice as much or as hard as I wanted. I was teaching, I would say, two times, maybe three times a week uh, for like one, two, three hour sessions. So I had very little time to practice myself. So um, in the beginning, I really tried to focus like, okay, how can I get like these people to understand the exercises as soon as possible? So then I can basically join in and rotate with everybody. So we all practice at the same time. And then at that time, what I was doing is like, I was putting in about 50% effort in my own, own kendo 
So I, I was going for certain strikes, but the other 50%, I was like more looking to the other side, seeing what other students were doing so I could give them feedback. Because I knew if I could make them better and them stronger, um, I would have better opponents in my own practice, which could like raise my own level as well. And uh, that actually worked. So one of the the people that really helped me a lot and is still helping me a lot as well is um, one of my kohai, but also one of my really good friends, Jonathan. Um, and he also went actually to International Buddha University because I advised him like, hey, you can really go here because of your level right now. And I think he's also like, he's Sandan or Yondan right now. Um, so also joining a national team practice. Uh, but he started off as a beginner as well, right? So bringing him up to that level really helped me a lot because and because he was so motivated, I got more motivated and it basically just builds up and up. And the second thing that really helped me was that my university was very excited for me being a national team member. Um, so they gave me a scholarship. Uh, I was allowed to be less hours at the university. I think on average students were asked to be at least 50 hours at the uni for schoolwork. And I think, uh, my like, like lowest amount of uh, hours at the university was, I think like 25 or 26 a week. So I was doing half the time, um, inside of school and practically zero time outside of school because I was just practicing. And then because of the scholarship, I didn't have to find like a, a part-time job to support my life, basically. So that was very nice and uh, very convenient. Um, and then, you know, there's my parents who allowed me to borrow the car so I could drive to national team practice a few hours away. And um, I, the Dutch government has like this uh, student financial plan kind of thing which make it makes it possible for you to travel if your students travel for free during the week time or during the weekends um with public transport so i was able to you know like join some practices in other cities as well during the week because i would just like don't eat dinner and then just go in the train and then practice for a few hours and then come back and then eat something at the train station so that was like kind of like my life and it, it had its downsides because uh, there were a lot of times where I didn't have the possibility to spend a lot of times with my friends, you know, like they all knew like, oh, he's doing kendo again. Oh, he's not available this weekend because he's somewhere else again or that kind of stuff. And it was also pretty hard to see people from other dojo because if we look at big cities like Amsterdam or Rotterdam, where currently most of the national team members reside, uh, you can really see that these guys have like, higher level teachers so they don't they're not bothered with pretty much 90 percent of the trouble that i have to you know like overcome they don't have students they have to teach because they can focus 100 on their own stuff they don't have the two hour like uh travel distance going back and going forth like that's like four hours for a two hour session of practice right they didn't have that so they had a lot more time to invest in their own uh physique as well so that made it very hard and it just made it even more rewarding to actually become the national champion uh, in 2019 as well. Because it wasn't just like luck. Um, in the beginning, I, I did really feel like I was just lucky. Um, but then I, I know that in my like uh, road to becoming the national champion, um, all the people I fought, I, I think there was only one person that I fought that was not in the national team. 
Um, so pretty much everybody, every step that I took in that championship was defeating a national team member, including uh, the team captain of the girls team, which uh, which just became like half a year before that I became you were getting like, oh, I, I just got lucky. Uh, but then I realized it's because I'm putting all this effort in and because I'm focusing so much on, you know, like keeping up this this whole build, uh, I was able to do it. So I'm, I'm extremely grateful for all the people that helped me get there, including all the national team members who I practiced with. Because, you know, like if, if I didn't have the chance to practice with them for, I don't know, like uh, once every month, then, you know, that would be an experience less and a chance more for them to win. Yeah. Yeah, there might be something about this remote uh, person because even in Canada, actually, the the most recent national champion is not in a big city, and he's had to find ways of um, learning on his own. He's he has his own dojo, but yeah, I think there's something about yeah the smaller town. Uh, I don't know the the work ethic that's there to to put in. Um, so speaking of like the difficulty in training when you're far away, right now with coronavirus, it's even harder to to get into dojo. But you're talking about these, uh, there's these Zoom sessions that you're having with Kaneda Sensei. So I'm just curious, like from someone of his ability, he must have found at least some uh, unique way of being able to pass on some information through through Zoom. And uh, the good thing is that he can actually reach more people if, if necessary, because it's online. Um, how have those sessions been going? Um, well, I mean, Kaneda Sensei is is like an incredibly kind uh, and extremely skilled teacher, and I'm I'm very happy that he's able to use Zoom. So it originally started with you know like the state of emergency here or state of emergency, like basically Corona happening here in Japan as well. And Kaneda Sensei is a very young Hachidan, but you know he's he's not the youngest Yaido guy in the world anymore. So he's actually part of the risk group. Um, and that made him say like, okay, the usual practice sessions, I think he had like four or five times that where he was teaching for two hours a week, uh, for, for two hour sessions every week. Um, uh, he basically asked those people like, hey, you guys can still go to the dojo, but I want to teach from home. Is that a possibility? And then they set up Zoom together and... Um, then, because he's so kind, he reached out to people all over the world. There's um, uh, a group in uh, Santiago. There's a group in Chile. There's uh, pretty much all over the world. I think even New Zealand has like a Zoom session with Kaneda Sensei. And um, because Kaneda Sensei was a really big help with making the dojo, he's also the one that did the calligraphy of it and uh, really like came up with the name as well and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he was really involved with Washington, the, the club as well. And he's like immediately like, hey, uh, back, I was, back when I was still in the Netherlands, he was like, hey, we can actually do a Zoom session. And at that time in the Netherlands, it was not allowed to do like go to the dojo or anything. So we just tried to do it at home once a week at uh, a time that was convenient for him because we were already so, you know, like so happy that he, he would actually be able to teach us and give us feedback, uh, even if it was just for one hour a week. And then that kind of became like a weekly thing. And when I left for Japan, um, I arrived here. And obviously, because of the time time difference, uh, I was not able to join the practice sessions in the Netherlands anymore. But we had different sessions here in Japan because of the t- clubs where he was teaching. So I actually joined those. 
because uh, he's like, oh, well, you can join these ones. So the people in the Netherlands are actually learning right now directly from Kaneda Sensei instead of me. And in the beginning, I used to be a translator, but because Jonathan has also been to the International Buddha University, he also speaks Japanese, so he can translate now. So it, it just spreads, right? They can learn more from, from Kaneda Sensei than they can from me anyways. So it just makes more sense that they can learn it directly from the source. Yeah. So just from a personal interest um, in terms of doing Yaido online, how how does he run these sessions? Like, how does he help people with through Zoom? Um, so basically what happens is we do the exact same thing as we would do in a regular uh, practice session because um, I've, I've been to like the places where he teaches and, and it's pretty much a one-on-one copy, uh, except for the part where he's not able to adjust your body um, physically, right? Usually he would like pick your sword and balance it a slightly different or pull on your arm or push your feet out uh, in the correct way. Um, but apart from from that, it's it's pretty much the same. We start with uh, warming up Suburi and some other exercises. Then we run through all 12 uh, Koryu Kata. Then we run through all 12 Sete Yai Kata. Then he basically uh, asks like, okay, is there something that anybody has specific questions about? So today I had specific questions about some, some footwork and some kata. And then he's like, okay, then we're going to focus on this aspect. And then he shows it. Uh, and he has a really big screen at home. So he can see like all the different people. He shows it uh, by himself. So everybody's looking at him. Then we do it all together. So we do it at the same time as, as sensei. And then we do it about four or five times, depending on how many people there are and how many mistakes are being made. Uh, we do it like four or five times where the teacher is just like looking at the screen, looking at every person and saying like, okay, you need to adjust your leg here and here. Oh, you need to uh, keep your body straight there and there. Um, and then he's asking like, does everybody understand it? And if somebody doesn't understand it, like he goes more into detail. And then we usually do that for about two hours. Um, and then we end with like some pretty heavy leg suburi like exercises. Um, and that's pretty much it. And that's pretty much the same as, as a regular practice as well, except for the part where I said you can physically correct you. Yeah. Okay, cool. So at this point, uh, we're already kind of a little past time. Um, do you have like five more minutes? We can just run through the rapid yeah. fire questions. Like I said, I'm I'm at the office. I'm not going anywhere. So as long as you want. Okay, great. Uh, so let's just start with uh, the top one, which is: Do you have a quote or a proverb that uh, you like live by or practice by? Uh, yeah. So the proverb I like. I'm not sure if it's a if it's an existing one or if I came up with it myself. Um, but it's basically: Don't take life too serious, but be serious in what you pursue. So I'm generally uh, a guy who jokes around a lot, right? I, I make a lot of very bad dad jokes. Um, and I just try to, you know, like get like a comf- like a, a nice vibe going around with all kinds of people. Um, but there are some stuff that, you know, like I, I try to pursue. I try to pursue, you know, like this general like happiness or, or whatever it is. And I am trying to do that on a more serious note. And, you know, like becoming national champion was one of the things that, you know, I was serious in. I was joking around a lot, you know, and I 
and we were with the national team members we were drinking a lot but yeah so that's you know like a basically um don't be too serious but be serious in what you do it's kind of vibe yeah that's good that's some advice that i need to take myself to <laughs> in the way we do things uh, i like i really like your answer to the second one so which is what have you changed your mind about in the last few years yeah so um some things can and some things cannot be changed and i think that people spend a lot of time looking back on what they could have done or should have done um and then they're not really as much thinking about what they can still do, right? So in, in my example, I really, when I, um, when I went to International Buddha University, my teachers initially wanted me to stay. So they were like, okay, can you, you can stay. We, uh, you can enroll in the three or four year program. So you've been like a total of five years in Japan. But I made some promises in the Netherlands and I came back to the Netherlands. And up until this day, I still regret it. I, I really wish I would have gone uh, and stayed those years because, because I would have been a better Kendoka, better Budoka, and my life would have just looked different. Um, but I cannot change that, right? So it's, it's not a whole lot of use for me to just be sad about it the whole time and be like, oh, I should have stayed. And I try to leave that in the past and think like, okay, well, what? can i do right now i cannot change it but i can focus on my next study goal and i can focus on becoming a national champ i can focus on working for sony um, and that's what i did so that's that's like the kind of vibe like basically again in the same thing you know like be serious in what you pursue can you talk about a a recent book or movie or tv show or podcast that you're kind of enjoying right now and why it's, I don't know, either good for you or entertaining or important? Okay, well, so I, I have a very funny one. Um, I've been a very, very long time fan of a YouTube channel called Ants Canada. <laughs> and it's, uh, <laughs> it's basically a guy who um, started an ant colony back in Canada and he was just making like a kind of vlog kind of thing about it. And it grew out uh, to like, I think he has like over 3 million subscribers. He has like a whole channel. He's building an entire house right now that's focused on having end rooms and all that stuff. And for me, it's just really nice to like watch it. I, I find ants very inspiring and interesting. Um, it's, it's just cool insects, I guess. Uh, you see the ants and he kind of tells a story with every episode as well and it's just very relaxing to have on screen uh when i'm working just in, kind of in the background and it's uh it's exciting yeah that's super interesting i didn't even know something like that existed i need to go check that out yeah it's it's super cool it's uh it's really interesting and especially in in the beginning i was uh the very first videos were not extremely interesting it's literally just a, a guy uh, I think back at that time, he was like either late teens or early 20s. Uh, he's literally just catching like ants in like test tubes on the street. It's a really simple kind of thing. And then eventually somewhere halfway around his videos, I think uh, it really grew out to be something special. So he has like a very high definition camera. 
and he filmed some stuff that has never been seen before, like uh, with queen ants uh, actually laying eggs, because everybody knows they lay eggs, but never has, nobody's ever recorded it. Um, finding new ant species, these kind of things. Um, so that was very interesting for me to see as well, because it's you know like just learning in general about new stuff. And then lately, he's kind of twisted his um, his channel around, and he's making very big kind of like landscape, uh, like ant enclosures. But they're really big, and he really designs them as well. And what I find cool is that you can again see like okay, as a design, he bases it on reference. And it's it's kind of like inspiring as well. Like I'm, if I'm going to make an open world video game example for Sony, and the next thing we're working on, I have to make a specific type of thing as well like i can draw inspiration from what i've seen with him look at real life reference uh from the world and basically mush that together to get like a unique but very good looking new new thing in the game so for me it's like it's just because it's also changing but it's it's also kind of still the same it's uh it's pretty good and it's very interesting there's a lot of fun I recently watched like a, a YouTube video that's explaining ant colonies too. And I thought that it like, there's something about them that helps you kind of change how you perceive things. Because in that one, there was arguing that an ant, an individual ant itself is not the living organism, but the colony and how it's like all these different moving parts, like they have their roles. And if you want to think about that too, like our bodies are made of cells and cells are living organisms and they all play their own part. And if like the cell, if the whole body dies, like everyone dies. So it's the same thing. Like I, re- I, according to this YouTube channel, they're saying that if the queen dies, then the whole colony dies. Like there is no, okay, let's make another queen, like a, like a bee colony would do something like that. So it's like treating the whole colony as one organism rather than each individual ant. And I thought that was cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is pretty cool. And I find it really interesting because, like I said, like Ants Canada has like multiple ant colonies. Um, it has colonies where they're actually, they have, they're called super colonies. And it's basically a colony with uh, more queens. So it's not just a single queen, um, but it's basically a whole bunch of queens. So they, they grow exponentially fast because they have more to produce. Um, so they have those. And then there's also colonies that don't have a queen. Or basically, they're all queens, so they're all female ants. But one basically just grows like a, as an egg laying factory, and then if she dies, another ant takes it over. And then, of course, you have the ant species as well, where there's like only one queen. But even in those those situations, uh, what I find really funny, and that he also kind of focuses on in his episodes, is that even if there's like only one queen, and if she would die. Um, she doesn't make any decisions, right? So he has ant enclosures that start very small from just one queen with a few genetics, uh, like the first few ants that get born, uh, up until like huge colonies. And he's like, the ants decide to have a say in it, which is a very interesting thing because here we have like a kind of like matriarchal vibe about it. Like, oh, the queen's everything and she decides everything, but she's literally just the egg laying factory. That, that's it. We call her the queen because there's only one, but the whole colony decides as one big group what's going on. Yeah, it's like if they don't have enough uh, food, then they would send more things out to, to look for it. Um, some ants like that don't go to a certain size, then they're, they stay at home and take care of like the larva. And it's just naturally like when something is missing, 
then a new ant will just take its place. Like somehow new ants are born to, to kind of do that. And you think about it, like if a human being, they lose this one sense of like either their eyesight or their hearing, then the other parts like improve. So it's, yeah. yeah. It's very cool that way. Um, anyways, this has been like a super fun conversation, but um, you have to go, we have to go. So uh, is there anything that you want to say in closing to the audience, something that um, just to share with us? Um, well, well, first of all, I would say like for the people, I think most of the people listening are experienced with Budo as well, but for the ones that are not, I would say find a local dojo and see what it's all about. It's really cool. And for the people who are more experienced, I would say like check out the International Budo University. And instead of just basing your opinion on what I say because I'm super positive about it or other people say because they might be negative about it because they had negative experiences, I would say look it up for yourself. Go check it out. It's an amazing experience. And um, you're, you're, if you don't go and you're thinking like, oh, I should have gone, it's going to be something you have regretted. So you should better be going. That's kind of like the, the vibe that I want people to know because the International Buddha University, I'm by accident actually wearing a shirt because I was practicing, but uh, it's an amazing place and I love it. That's awesome. And I'm looking forward to sometime, hopefully we get to train together too. I think my sensei is uh, Hatakenaka sensei. So I think there she's friends with Kaneda sensei and every so often like the Tokyo region stuff, they get together to do stuff. So hopefully That'd one of these days cool. we'll get, yeah, we'll train together. Awesome. Thank you yeah. so much. Uh, have a good night. And um, yeah, I'll talk to you again in the future. Yeah, thanks. Hit me up anytime you want. Take care. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode because we have a lot more exciting conversations to share as we explore the world of the traditional Japanese martial arts. The Inside Look podcast is made possible by our patrons over at Patreon. So if you enjoy this work and want them to continue, please consider supporting us for as little as a cup of coffee. There are many more ways for us to work together by connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram at tokushikai.canada and subscribing to our monthly newsletter at subscribe.tokushikai.ca. Until next time, thanks for listening.